Welcome to the Top Order Podcast. Today in this episode, we're joined by a man who's played over 50 tests and more than 100 ODIs for New Zealand across a 10-year international career. He captained his country, scored 300 in a day, played first-class cricket in South Africa, coached Ireland, and has worked in the betting and racing industries among plenty more interesting experiences. Ken Rutherford, welcome to the Top Order Podcast. Good evening, guys. How are you this evening? Oh, look, we're very well and, and delighted to be here. Um, look, since you've been kind enough to sit down with us on the podcast, we thought we'd start right back at the start. Was being an international cricketer always the dream that you had when you were growing up? Um, probably not, actually. I mean, my, my both my parents came from Aberdeen in Scotland and, uh, you know, back in the 50s, cricket probably wasn't uh, a, a sport played often up in the Granite City, um, but football was, soccer was, and... Uh, having two older brothers who were pretty good at soccer and, and cricket as well, mind you. But I guess if you'd asked me at 12 or 13 years of age, which, which sport was more likely to take my attention span over the next 10 to 15 years, I probably would have said football. But uh, it wasn't quite the case. And, and cricket from around, well, I debuted for Otago when I was 17, wasn't, wasn't it? So I guess from about 15 or 16, cricket became more of a primary sport to me than, than, than soccer. And, you know, debut at 16, 17 for Otago, and at 19 you find yourself picked for New Zealand to tour the West Indies. I mean, at a tender young age like that, what was going through your mind when you were selected? How did you find out? And uh, had you met anyone in the squad at that point even? Yeah, I had. I had met a few of the guys. I'd I'd been a substitute fielder a couple of times at Carisbrook in in, uh, some of the test matches played there in the mid-'80s. That very memorable one, actually, in 1984, five when Pakistan... Played at Carisbrook, you might remember Lance Cairns got hit in the head by Wazim Akram. Yeah, and yeah. You know, I think it was Chatfield and Coney uh, must have batted for quite some time to put on about 40 or 50 to win the Test match for New Zealand. I was the substitute field on that match and uh, was around the dressing room. So I got to meet quite a few of the guys then as a sort of 17, 18 year old, I suppose. But I mean, I was you know, very surprised to get picked to go on that tour in, in 1985 to the West Indies. Obviously, they were. A pretty good side. Uh, I'd played all of eight first-class games, I think, guys, at that yeah. stage for Otago, and averaging, averaging around 31, and they got one uh, first-class hundred. So the, you know, the experience wasn't there at all, was it really? But I think to be fair to Frank Cameron, Don Neely, and the other selectors of that side, they probably saw me as a bit of a, a punt for the future. Uh, that I wouldn't get to play too many Test matches, if any, on that tour. But the way things panned out, I played all four of them. Yeah, did you think going into that tour that you'd get to play in any of the tests? What were your expectations going to the West Indies for the first time as a 19-year-old? Well, I, I, oddly enough, because I'd been reasonably successful through my sort of school days and age group level and into and, and, and playing for Otago was going okay, I, I kind of, I guess, had this naivety about me, which I thought, look, it's just a red ball coming down. It might be a bit quicker and it might be a foreign country, et cetera, but I, I should still go okay because I've, I've, I've gone okay pretty much all the way through to date, to, to, to those 19 years. Um, but clearly that was completely wrong. Um, it didn't take me long, I don't think, to to work that out. Probably one test match, bagging the, bagging the pair in the first test match. Uh, I always say to people, ask me, guys, that the, the worst thing I did, I think, was to score 100, uh, my second first-class 100 against a West Indies under-23 team at uh, at St Kitts, the, the game before the Test match. That kind of gave me, uh, that pro- you know, that pushed my claims to, to be selected in the Test side. So that was probably the worst thing I did. 
Yeah, I mean, we'll get to the on-field stuff in a second, but can you talk to us about kind of what cricket was, you know, international cricket, I suppose, was like in 1984-85? I mean, you know, what what was the, I mean, you know, no disrespect, but we're not we're not on ships and anything like that. It's not that far back, but it, we're, <laughs> we're, I'm sure that, you know, the actual travel conditions and the, the facilities and, and everything was completely different to how it is for, for the guys and, and girls today. Yeah, it was. I mean, I remember as an example, we used to meet at the uh, the Travel Lodge Hotel at Auckland Airport, um, meet in the foyer there in the, in the house bar there. Yeah. And um, Graham Dowling, who was the then CEO of, of New Zealand Cricket, would turn up with one contract. Yeah. And uh, everyone would be asked to read the contract. It was about 30 pages long, so, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily read most of it. And uh and the back page was a place for everyone to sign it, the whole team, to sign one one page. <laughs> and um, it was sort of a going joke at the time, guys. If, if, as long as Richard Hadley signed the back page, we're, we're all in <laughs> because uh, he was obviously the key player. If we did, if we went without pedals, uh, we, we had no chance of winning. So everyone used to give pedals the contract first and say, Richard, you read this and you sign it. If you haven't signed it, we're all going to sign it. So that was, that was the way it was done. Um, and getting to the West Indies, I remember the, the plane trip. You went through LA to Miami, through to I think the first game was in Kingston, Jamaica, and you know it took about fifty hours probably to get there. There was no overnights. We just, you know we slummed it, I guess, in, in transit lounges um, on the way through to, to Kingston, Jamaica, and and, um, and then turned up there and went for two and a half months and and, and played all the lead up games. Of course, these days they don't play any lead up games, do they? they? Just go straight into test matches, ODIs or T Twenties, and mm. and with uh, big, big squads of players nowadays. I mean, I just read today the Australian squad's been picked to go to the West Indies to play white ball over there. I think it's about 30 in it. So, yeah, yeah. and back then the West Indies tour would have only been sort of 14 or 15. So the, the whole resourcing, the whole professionalism was completely different to what it is today. And, and uh, you know, you, so you are selected for those tests and, and I guess it's been well documented. Things didn't go especially well for you in those those four games. But, I mean, you know, h- how scary was that West Indies attack? I mean, it, you were up against Malcolm Marshall, Michael Holding, Joel Garner. You said you'd played eight test, uh, eight first-class games. I mean, that, there's not there's not much of a, a tougher uh, introduction to international cricket at, at that point, surely. Uh, no, probably not. I mean, when you th- when you think about the great teams of, 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 of the history of the game, really, um, going back all those years to... WG Grace and, and others back in the in the late 1800s. I mean, the West Indies side of the 80s is probably one which ranks in the top two or three in terms of the all-time great size. I'm sure there's a couple of uh, recent Australian sides, or maybe not recent Australian sides, but Australian sides with Gilchrist and Warren, et cetera, and Ponting who would, mm. would rank up there as well. But you're talking Haynes, you're talking Greenwich, you're talking Gomes. Mm. Then you're talking Viv Richards, Richie Richardson, Gus Logie, Jeff Dujon. Then you got your bowlers, Malcolm Marshall, Joel Garner, Michael Holding, uh, Courtney Walsh, Patrick Patterson, Winston Davis, etc. So it was it was a, a formidable lineup. Um, I think if you look at that series we played against them in, in '85, uh, the most remarkable thing about it was, in a way, that we only lost two two nil. Um, we we drew the first two Test matches and at Port of Spain and Trinidad and, and at uh, George, uh, Georgetown, Guyana, the border over in Georgetown, and uh, then got on a very quick wicket at uh, Barbados and got thrashed and then on another very quick wicket at Sabina Park and uh, actually put on a pretty good match, to be fair, but still went, went under to the Western East there. So to lose two zip in a four-match series against the Winnies in those days actually was a fairly credible performance by the side. 
And and how are things for you, like being that young during the tour? I guess you're you're struggling on the field, and and nowadays there'd be a lot of support staff and, and all that kind of stuff. But I imagine it was just maybe coach, manager, maybe even a maybe not even a physio. Then, would would what was the I guess the the atmosphere like in the camp? And and did you get support from the players? Did you get support from the coaching staff? Um, th- there was rum. You know, one thing about the West Indies is, is there's rum. Yeah. And um, fortunately, it was rum, actually. But um, no, of course, I'm being flippant. But no, the guys were, were excellent. I mean, mm. you know, John Wright talks about it now when we're having a couple of beers and, and talking about the days we used to spend down at the, at the pool after a day's play and, and just talking about general life stuff. Mm. Uh, Johnny Braceful uh, and, and all the guys, really. I mean, Chats, Lance Keynes, et cetera. Um, it was, I think everyone understood it was a, almost impossible assignment for you know for, for an opening batsman of 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 good good uh, experience but for an opening batsman of, of no experience such as I was and and of, of youth as well was was going to be extremely tough so I think you know without you know, pandering to me and, and being overly patronizing towards me they they, they sensed that it was pretty tough but yeah, at the end of the day, as already said to me once, he said, mate, you're always going to go through a tough spell in your, in your test career. Hopefully you're going to have a long one. Uh, you just got rid of yours in the, in the first series. Yeah, ideally. Um, and, I mean, you, you <laughs> so, so after uh, after that tour, you, you did uh, get dropped from the New Zealand side. Uh, how were, were the scars there? I mean, how tough was it to make it back to international cricket after that? Yeah, I, I guess they were. I mean, I, I, I sort of look back at, you know, I was, I was 19, so I'm 50. 54 now, so it's, yeah. it's, it's like, a, like a lifetime ago. Yeah. Uh, it, it pretty much is, isn't it? So I, I, I can't recall exactly how I felt. I, I guess I still had that kind of naive, youthful ignorance. That's a good word to use. And I think it was probably very apt uh, of me in those days that oh, things would be okay. You know, I guess a bit of a Kiwi, she'll be right attitude to things. Um, we'll, we'll get it right. We'll be, we'll be fine. And instead of coming back to New Zealand, um, after that tour, tour finished mid-May 1985. I got a contract. I had a contract to play Yorkshire League cricket for Hull. Mm. Of course, in those days, Hull and still is now is a big rugby league town, and uh, very little cricket was played there apart from just that Yorkshire League side. And uh, even though they're part of Yorkshire, which has a, a great affinity with the game, it wasn't really a cricket town. I think that really helped, and that I could go over there, play once or twice a week in the, in the leagues. Uh, but just sort of, you know, just live a pretty normal life and, and, and relatively relative anonymity from everyone else. So I think if I'd gone back to New Zealand in the middle of May 1985, everyone would have been once again wondering how I was, which was probably the last thing I needed. I needed just to get back on the horse, back on the bike and, and play a bit of cricket again. I think that really helped. Yeah, and of course you did make it back to the international scene. A couple of years later you scored... 300 runs in, in two sessions during a tour match in England. And that's, you know, an outstanding effort to get, you know, 100 in a session, let alone 302 sessions. But our researchers really wanted to know if you can share any stories about the night before, allegedly a, a birthday party of a young Willie Watson turning 21. Uh, is there any recollection that you can share with us? Uh, the recollections are, are grey, greying <laughs> and dimming by the, by the years, guys, but uh, they, the, your informants are accurate. Um, I was telling the story to a mate of mine the other day, actually. 
And um, I, I suggested there might have been about 20 beers involved the night before. He said, Rudd's knowing you, that it must have been close to 30. Um, I do recall having a few flaming uh, Gallianos, or as their book was saying, at about 4 o'clock in the morning prior to that 300, but I shouldn't be saying that, should I? But no, it was, uh, it's all true. Um, I, I, I remember nicking my second ball, I thought, just in front of, of Jeff Boycott at, uh, at first slip. And he kind of claimed it. And I thought, well, that's that's okay, because I wasn't, wasn't feeling too flash. I thought, you know, duck in my last innings in the UK in 1986. That's right. <laughs> you know, it was still a first-class game, but nevertheless. And I uh, started walking off, and Boyks owned up to the fact that it might have bounced. And I went, oh, are you sure, Jeff? And he said, yeah, Rudds, I think you've got to hang around. I said, okay, mate. <laughs> and then Franklin Stevenson, the West Indian, uh, bowled me a nice juicy half volley out. So I was done a whack for four. I thought, oh, that feels a bit better. I got 100 before lunch, and... I got 199 in the middle session, so uh, yeah, yeah, things went okay that day. The, the, the funniest thing about that innings, though, guys, was uh, Captain Jeremy Coney, who had been uh, extensive in the Willie Watson celebrations the night before as well. He'd, he'd got out for a four or five, I think, in the first session, and had slept the middle session. And I came off at tea time, uh, 303 not out, I think it was, and. Um, John Wright, he was slapping me on the back and braces and the boys and uh, woke Jeremy up because he'd slept. And he turned to me, he looked up, I was in my pads and a bit sweaty and uh, perspiring. And he said, she Roger, are you still batting? I said, yeah, I am. He said, you must be on about 170 by now. And I said, no, I'm on 303, Jeremy. <laughs> he just, he just started laughing, joking, thought I was having him on. And Roddy said, have a look at the, have a look at the scoreboard, uh, Captain. So that, that, that was the funniest thing. Brilliant. Brilliant. I mean, we touched on your tough start to a test career. And, and so what was that feeling like when you did get that first test 100? Was that when you started to think, okay, I, I kind of belong at this level, I deserve to be here? It was just pure relief, quite frankly. Um, and I, I, I give all credit to Captain John Wright for batting on in that game. I mean, I think it was, if you look in the annals of test match draws, that game of the Basin Reserve between England and New Zealand was probably one of the worst or most boring draws anyway on a very, very flat wicket. I think we batted for two and a half days at a, at a scoring rate of about 2.27, and they did the same. And um, quite frankly, I couldn't get a few runs on that pitch. <laughs> there were a few questions asked. I think it was my 14th test, so, you know, for a, for a top to middle to player, that was just too many. Um, but, yeah, that was relief. It was relief. It was uh, – I, I was 91 or 92 not out overnight, so I can tell you. With uh, great certainty, the Terrace Regency Hotel in the old days up in the Terrace in Wellington, I was fair shit myself most <laughs> of the night and sleep. Uh, but got those eight or nine runs the next day. I remember, I think, working David Capel, the Northamptonshire seamer, down to third man for for a single to, to, to get my 100 and uh, waved to the crowd. I think the crowd actually shared my, my feeling of relief. It was... Uh, a celebration for sure, absolutely, but uh, a sense that Jeepers, it's, it's a few test matches, take, it's taken a few test matches too long. And, and um, we'll probably jump around a bit and we'll move to, to the 92 because, I mean, I think for, for us here on the, on the podcast, it's it's sort of one of our, our special memories from, from when we were growing up, um, you know, starting to, to watch the game and, and fall in love with the game. I mean, even speaking as a, a New Zealander, even with the way it ended, it feels like when everyone looks back at it, it's it's a special time for cricket in New Zealand. But did you guys, when you were starting that tournament, did you guys have any confidence at all? Because the results hadn't gone especially well beforehand. 
Um, well, from a personal perspective, we, we played an, an, a series against England uh, leading up to that World Cup in '92. I think it was a five-match series or four-match series. I'd been left out the first two games. So mm. they only picked the squad, the final 40-man squad for the World Cup, halfway through the England series. So I'd been left outside. I wasn't even going to be in the World Cup squad. Mm. And the team had lost the first two games badly. And there was a bit of a odd squad runs for Otago. So it was a bit of a clamouring to get runs back in the side, which... I had no certainty that I was even going to be in the World Cup side. So, and this was literally only, you know, two weeks, two and a half weeks before the, the World Cup started with our, with our game in South Africa, it wasn't against Australia at the SCG. Mm-hmm. And uh, then our first match at Eden Park, not so long after that. But so personally, I wasn't expecting to be there. Yeah. Um, but once I was back in, in the side and we, we kept losing to England, it's fair to say there was no expectation at all. And um, what people sometimes fail to realise is that the, the attendance of that first game we played against Australia guys at Eden Park, less than 20,000 people there. Mm-hmm. Um, it was hardly full. And uh, the sense of, you know, desperation. I mean, this team hasn't played well. We're playing against an Australian side who were the reigning world champions and won the, 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 the tournament in India four, four years prior, five years prior who are a side who swept all before them under Alan Border's captaincy recently. And you just went down their lineup and you just thought, gee, we've got no chance. So did we rate ourselves? We thought, we hoped, I guess, that the home advantage would have some kind of bearing. But cheapest, you, 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 if you're sitting a book, as you would these days in terms of uh, you know, analysing the odds of a team leading into a major competition, we would have been 25, 3 to 1 best. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we, we've talked to um, Deepak Patel um, on, in an earlier podcast and, and he talked to us about how the team made like a real point of trying to kind of get one over on the opposition that um, he talked about it. He told us a story about um, when he was driving the minibus to the ground and he and he cut off Dean Jones in, the, in their minibus on the way to Eden Park and turned around to Wally, Wally Lees and said, you know, there, there's one for me. And um and talked about how Mark Greatbatch was staring down the, the Aussies during the anthems. Did did uh, did you manage to get any mental wins against uh, any of the opposite numbers? I, I actually I, I got on and get on with quite a few of those Aussies quite well. So I think if I tried to steer them down, as I, I tried to steer Mark Ward down on that particular occasion, he would just laugh. So um, for me, that was probably lost. But Tobacco is right, and. Uh, and it probably comes from you know having, my having spent some time with with Warren, is he was my first ever club captain back in when I was fifteen years of age at the Dunedin Cricket Club in Dunedin at Tonga Park, mm. and then he was my first Otago captain when I was seventeen, playing first class cricket against Auckland at the Carisbrook in nineteen eighty two eighty three, he and then he became my my coach for New Zealand, uh, and the one thing that, that Leesy was very good at and probably still is, is still is is the fact that a team is only as good as the cliche says, the sum of all its parts, and he was big on that. And uh, I know that he 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 believed that with that New Zealand side nine nine two that it wasn't just about a Martin Crow, although he was very very important and was very important in that tournament. But we need, he needed to get other guys around Crow performing, mm. and prior to the World Cup they weren't. So. He, he coerced them. He 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 got a Mark Grapatch smashing at the top of the order. He got Dipak Patel with a new ball. He got myself scoring a few runs in the middle order. He got Danny Morrison doing a good job with a new ball at times as well. Chris Kins actually did a fair job. Mm. Everyone, Andrew Jones, obviously. Um, I'll go right through the whole Smithy. I mean, everyone performed 
son one given time. Chris House would throw down the stumps. Gavin Larson did what Gavin Larson always used to do in those days, which was very consistent. So, and Leesy was very good at just saying to guys, you know, not even saying to guys, but sort of just having that knowledge, that sort of instinctiveness as a coach, that intuitiveness as a coach to work with the guys to say, right, we just need you to, you know, to get your, your 90s or your 95% out of yourselves and we'll be okay here. And, uh, and and he did that. But the catalyst was obviously beating Australia in that first game. If we, if we hadn't beaten Australia in that first game, Eden Park, I don't think it, we would have got even close. Yeah, that, that's funny. You mentioned that that there was only, the crowd wasn't that good because I, I, you know, I have highlights video that I used to watch of, of the tournament, and I remember it quite, you know, well. And and you always they always cut to these uh, footage of the crowd and everyone's cheering. Yep. And and I think if you talk to people, that everyone will tell you that they were at that game and and at the the semi. Although obviously, uh, you know, we got on such a well, roll in that tournament later. They were, they, were, they were definitely at the semi, yeah. um, but that first game, if you look hard at the back of the stands and, you know, you know TV plays tricks on you, doesn't it, in terms of they, they pick up the, the, the heavily populated areas in the crowd. And uh, there was just a, a sense of apathy, really, after the, our series against England before that 9-2 World Cup. Mm. Um, but, but I think the overall, the, when you look at that 9-2 World Cup in terms of a ICC organised tournament, it was probably the best one that we've ever had, you know. Yeah. You had the teams that deserved to be there. They played each 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 themselves once. You truly found the best four teams to go to the semi-finals. Mm. And then, as we know, as we know, anything can happen in the semi-final World Cup. Yeah, yeah. I mean, did did you guys get swept up in all that atmosphere? And I mean, uh, you know, so at half halfway point of that uh, semi-final. I mean, are you guys think starting to think about the final? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I remember it vividly. Mm. Uh, I remember Rod Latham coming at me at, at half time, a big smile on his face, and saying something like, Rudds, we're nearly there. Mm. Can you believe we're going to play a World Cup? Not, not exact words to that effect, but words to that effect, if you know what I mean. And, and honestly, I I felt the same. I, what we get, 260 odd, 270, yeah, yeah. You got, you, you, you'll know more than I do about the exact uh, yeah, score. Which was a massive score then, wasn't it? Which in those days, Eden Park, as, as you well know, I mean, that was. You know, a lot of runs. Um, so you know, we, we, we were swept away with it. And um, I don't know, a lot's been said about what happened in those 50 overs, hence. Mm. And I'm not going to make too much of a comment other than to say in a game of sport, one team sometimes plays a little better than the other. And sometimes certain individuals uh, play some innings which are um, you know, hard to decipher, hard to you know, categorise in terms of. Uh, what you expect, and I think Enzimar Mohawk did that that day. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, you could see it on the, um, you know, there's so much footage of, of all the guys in tears afterwards and things. I mean, you know, it, was that the the most crushing loss of your career? I mean, I feel like it, it seemed that way at the time, even for for us fans. Yeah, it probably was. Yeah, no, well, obviously it was. Mm. I mean, I don't I don't dwell on it too much actually, because I mean, I, I just think you've. I'm a bit simplistic about these sort of things, guys. I, I, I kind of think it is sport. It is a game at the end of the day, and, and it is very simplistic. So you, you do your best, you try your best, and sometimes that's not quite good enough. But um, if you look yourself in the mirror, that's a horrible cliche, isn't it? But and say that you've actually done as, as well as you can, then you haven't got too many comebacks. And I, I know as a fact that over the course of those two and a half months of or two months of playing that tournament, we did as as well as we, we as well as we could have. Um, 
I think that previous game we played against Pakistan at Christchurch had a, had a bit, of, bit of a bearing on it. Yeah. They had been our nemesis side for a, for a few years with um, Eunice and Akram and, and guys like that, and me and Dad and and other guys. So a very talented side. Mm. And there's always a sense in a one-off game like a semi-final they were going to do something mercurial. And I kind of quite quickly came to the realisation that it was mercurial. That's just Pakistan. They've done it to us before. They'll, they'll probably do it to us again with those quality of players. And, you know, I think if you'd ask me who's the best batsman that I've ever seen, uh, there were probably three guys I'd probably say. Martin Crowby won. Alan Border probably the second one, but probably top of the polls, Java Mendad. And the way Mendad, if you go back and look at that, Last two hours of that match, ball by ball, in real time, and just find a recording of it. The way Mandad kept his whole side, you know, the guy at the other end, his partner, mm. under control in a, in, a, in a red hot white lightning situation. You know, Inzaman was what, 18, 19 years of age? He was young, yeah. Mandad was down there every ball, talking to him, controlling him, you know, massaging the guy, composing the guy. And uh, I've seen me and Dad do that so many times. He's, he's just He was just a genius, that guy. And probably in terms of the plethora of great players that we've seen in the 80s and 90s as, as batsmen with great records, he was a guy probably, in my opinion, gets underrated. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, post the 92 World Cup, a few senior players from that New Zealand side moved on. And you found yourself as, as captain in a test, and again, this time against... Pakistan was was captaincy in that leadership role something that you you strived for was it something you ever aimed for when and when did it come when it came along what was it like from taking over from Martin Crow? Lots of questions there. Um, well, take off from take off from Crow was was difficult because he was very very good. Um, in fact, when you talk about losses that irk, there was probably a loss that irks in a way more than that semi final um, when we lost to Hamilton that day against Pakistan, but. Mm. Um, no, I never really had much expectation of, of Captain New Zealand. I, mean, I, I grew up as you know a good player through age group levels from under you know 12, 14, 16, 18, like a lot of young good players do. And, you, and because you're the best young player and you're a batsman, you you get given the captaincy. Um, but I never really had aspirations to, to take over from Crow. But uh, that that game at Seton Park in about what ninety three. Uh, we should have won that. I think we're chasing 130, the fourth innings on a good deck. Mm. We went into the fifth day, or it might have been the fourth day, actually, three down or four down. The, the turning point there was Andrew Jones. I mean, <laughs> nothing to do with Jones himself, but he, he absolutely smashed one straight to short point and he caught it off, off Eunice. And uh, that was a turning point. I, I, even another 20 runs of Jonesy that day, we would have won that game. I'm sure of it. But... Um, Jonesy got out there unluckily, and uh, I got out playing a pretty poor shot, driving wide at Akram, and things just uh, the, the domino effect was often the case when you face Eunice and Akram uh, occurred. It was, it was so hard to go out there fresh to face those guys, and um, you know, it's just it's just a game we probably should have won, and I'm sure everyone in that team reflects on that. But um, my first Test match, Owen won. You did manage to get your own back against Pakistan, though. You chased down over 300 to win, which was your first win as, as captain. That was a huge effort then to chase down 300 in, in those kind of conditions in New Zealand. That must have felt pretty good to, to get one on the board, though. Yeah, the old Lancaster Park, and that wicket you know, often got better and better as the game went on. That was the case in that test match. And, and Brian Young, I believe, got a few guys. Uh, Shane Thompson certainly got runs, and I'm pretty sure Tony Blaine took us home. So... Mm. You know, I, I, I 
captain New Zealand, 18 tests, two victories. Um, that was the first one, and the second one was the Wanderers in 1994. It was a good one, uh, a very good one. And uh, any time you beat Pakistan is, is, is good because they're a very good side. And, and look, um, the I guess one thing maybe is taking a little step back. It seemed like uh, uh, in that 92 World Cup, there was such – It's certainly from the outside, it seemed like there was such a, a good vibe in the – in the actual squad, but then it, it never really felt like we had that again um, for a free for a few few years. I guess as a as a fan watching on, did did the events in Sri Lanka in '92 like w- was that what sort of broke down all that stuff? Yeah, so that's a that's a really good question, and I sense that you've you've taken time and and you know it's, it's not an easy question to ask. Uh, I, I've no doubt about that. I've got no doubt at all that uh, the, the events in Sri Lanka that day. Uh, severed uh, some relationships in the side. Mm. Um, it was a, it was a difficult time, and it's it's funny when you talk to people subsequent to to that event that what I say to them is you you can't comprehend the extent of it or what you'd do in that particular case when you're given the the options at hand. And um, I don't know. You look back and you you might say there's regrets there from a personal perspective, from my side, or from a team perspective. All for one, one for all kind of thing. We we all should have gone home, or we should all try to stay. I don't know. There's there's no right or wrong in that, um, but, I, but I certainly know that from the from the folk that went home to some of the folk that they knew well who stayed, that some of the relationships were tainted, and um, I'm, I'm sure that uh, that is still felt to this day by some. Mm. Oh, look, I I I mean. I think it's tough for, for all of you guys just to have gone through that, to be to be quite honest. I think for anyone who's listening doesn't really know, you know, it was a bomb blast in, in Sri Lanka and you guys were, were very close to, to the ground level of, of it all happening. So, yeah, guys can, can go and do their own research on that. But, yeah, very, very tough times. Look, well, well, I did get a test 100, my second test 100 by staying. So um, it wasn't a bad call from a personal perspective. Yeah. Although I'm that. I'm saying that flippantly, guys. So don't take it too serious. No, no, no. But uh, nice, nice that there was a, a silver lining after something so so terrible. Look, we'll move to to ninety three, ninety four, the World Series, and New Zealand, South Africa, Australia. It's another I mentioned before. I had a highlights video of the ninety two World Cup. This was another video that I just had and, and played on repeat as a as a youngster. I don't really know why I loved it so much because New Zealand wasn't especially successful in that tournament. Uh, no. a, a few hammerings, but some good wins in there, and, and it felt like we were kind of the underdogs all the time. A, a couple of things really struck me watching it again recently. One was how the bats these days, pretty much every miscue in that video, it, it barely even got to the 30-metre circle, whereas nowadays everything goes for six. <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah. uh, the, and, and how big some of those grounds were in Australia when the boundaries weren't in. Yeah, and um, but yeah, I, 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 and I played on a lot of that series. I, I kept on playing on, I kept on trying to play late cuts to balls or middle stuff, which mm. clearly isn't a, you know, it's not a great technique really. But um, now they are big grounds, and, and your point around bats is actually one which has, I think, initially it was mentioned by quite a few, but it's been overlooked lately. And um, I've got a son, Hamish, who you'll know plays, and I look at his bats, and they pick up the same as my. The only bat I've still got, guys, is the bat I got 317 with at Scarlet. It's the only bat I, 
nice. retained to this day. It's in a chest in the storage in Cambridge, actually. I won't tell the unit number because it's probably <laughs> worth a bit of money in a few years' time or at least enough for a, for a couple of bottles of red wine. But um, it's really not very wide. It's, 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 it's like narrow and yeah. it's your, your, your typical grainy nickels from 1986. It's, it's, it's two pounds, was it two, uh, two pounds of 10 ounces or something like that? Does that sound right? Yeah. Hamish's bats weigh the same and he, he seems to have about five times more wood on it. They're like these thick ra- uh, railway pillars of bats, but they pick up beautifully. Mm. And, um, when they get a top end, the top edge they go for six if you if you try and hit them hard enough. And um, and, and there's certainly a, a relationship there between the um, you know the feats, the statistics of a 80, 1985 player to a two thousand and twenty one player, you know uh, twenty twenty one player. So uh, there's no doubt that the bats have had some sort of impact uh, in, in, in the way careers have have ebbed and flowed over the years, shall we say? But um, Going back to 1993-94, did we make the finals in those days? I think we did, didn't we? No, we no, we didn't. We, did we? I think we had uh, to had to beat Australia in the in the last round robin game and and lost right. in that one. Look, I, I could talk so about what this. It, what was what, what, what was the game when Chris Pringle bowled that last over to Bruce Reed and uh, went very well? That, that was yeah, that was a different two, that, two three. Yeah, that was a different series. Um, although yeah, that's yeah, it. See, I. I See, clearly my subliminal memory is about wins rather than losses, guys. So let's, let's try and be positive on the show. Okay? Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I do have a couple of specific kind of random questions for you <laughs> from that 93, 94 that I've always wondered about. The first one yeah. is uh, you chipped one back to Shane Warne uh, in, that, uh, in that series. Just very clear. Chipped it straight back to the bowler. But at the time you claimed bump ball and he actually got away with it. Did you, what I want to know is, did you genuinely believe that it was bump ball at that time, or was that just a brilliant piece of acting? So, who told? Did you set yourself, or have you heard the story before? No, no, I've I've watched. I, it's a, a video that I've watched many times. Well, that's one of my after dinner little speech notes. Actually, uh, you yeah, know, that was that was a complete bit of acting. That oh, was uh, Robert Redford, like, wasn't it? Which kissed him in Sundance Kid. I mean, it was. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, more like the colour of money or uh, the sting. Yeah, probably the sting, actually. No, that was a complete... I'll tell you what happened. He bowled me a slow full toss, like a flipper, a quicker one through the air, and it was about ankle height. And I very much hit it straight back to when he caught it. But I noticed when he was catching it, he, he went to his right in his follow-through. And I saw that the umpire was obscured in his view. And I thought, well, the umpire hasn't seen that. And sure enough, when I just hung around and the umpire hadn't seen it. And so he went to the squealing umpire. But meanwhile, as the umpires were conferring, so the squealing umpires walking towards the um, the front on umpire, et cetera, you know, as it was happening, they, sh- they showed on the big screen, the SCG, full house. And uh, everyone could see it. I mean, it was, it was clearly out. And uh, Steve Waugh came from backward point and Muddy had a full guard me and Ian Healy was a keeper. He had a full guard me and Ball was in a full guard me. The whole Australian's had a full guard me. My great bench was the other end laughing like, yeah, I thought, well, this is very funny. He said, Muds, you should have walked off there. I said, no, nah, bugger it. The umpires, you know, they, get, they occasionally get it wrong. So, and Steve Randall was the squealer umpire and he'd never, he, he wasn't really watching. So he couldn't say yes or no. And they, they weren't and they weren't allowed to refer to the big screen. They weren't allowed to look at it. Mm. So the umpires had to go, well, we've seen nothing here. So not out. Brilliant. I'll tell you, the only guy who never said anything was Shane Warne. Mm. 
In the next ball, he bowls with a short one outside off stump and I hit it down to um, out backward point for one. Now I walked past Warney and uh, I said, I said, uh, Warney, the cat got your tongue. I said, you might have been a bit lucky there, mate. <laughs> he said, Rats, I know if I give you a hard time, they make you try harder. <laughs> that's the only comp- compliment I've ever had from, a, from an Australian there. Yeah, yeah, true story. Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, I might have got one away on those guys then, but anyway, it's fair to say uh, they had plenty on us at yeah. times, particularly Australian umpires in Australia. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Have, have, have you heard of Dick French? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 that one. Have you, have you spoke to Brian Young since that tournament, though? Because it seemed like he wasn't really listening to your, your calls between the wickets oh. in that tournament. Jeez, I'll tell you what, I, I, I'm hardly Ben Johnson between the wickets, am I? I'm, I'm, I'm more like uh, Billy Bush, the ex-all-back prop. But, jeez, um, yeah, a couple of times he was a bit quick for me, old youngie. MCG was at one time, I seem to recall, yeah. Bailey. But, um, yeah, okay. And and just on a, on a more serious note, uh, you mentioned facing Warren before. It was right when he was bursting onto the scene and... and from memory, I think you actually personally went all right against him, but he, he just seemed to have it over most of the guys. Was was that purely that we just hadn't seen a leg spinner and faced a leg spinner, or, or I mean, even at that young age, was he just something so special? Yeah, I think I think all, all those things bear some thought, uh, and, and you, you, you're right on you know to some extent on all those things you said. Um, the thing about Warney was he was so consistent. Yeah, you know, he was he was. In a way, he was the best attacking bowler who was so defensive in his approach because if you compared him to the likes of Mushtaq Ahmed and, and others from Pakistan and the subcontinent like Huwani and those guys, mm. the, their biggest threat was the wrong one and the top spinner. I mean, Warney's wrong was a shocker. Absolutely. But by self-admission, if you are Shane Warney, about his wrong. It was a shocker. He basically bowled three balls. He bowled a very, very, very good league spinner. He bowled a, a, an average flipper, which occasionally got right. And he bowled a very good top spinner. But he was so consistent. I mean, his leg spinner was, he could land on a dime. And uh, particularly when he bowled around the wicket later on, later on test matches, you know, days four and five into the rough, it was very, very difficult to score runs. So, in techniques forever and a day, I mean, these days are worse techniques trying to play spin from you know, around the wicket into rough. They, they can't play it these days. But even back in 30 years ago, it was so to play it because. It's very hard to, to, to play four or five overs of one bowler and, and look to score no runs. That's difficult. Just the thought about batting is to, is to try and score runs. But as soon as you look to try and play out of the rough, what are you going to do? Your options are very limited. You can't dance down. You can't drive through the covers. Basically, you're limited to playing to about 60 degrees of, of, of the field. So mentally, that's very, very tough. And Warney knew that. And because you're so consistent, you didn't bowl long hops, you didn't bowl many... Uh, full tosses, only a few. He, he just had you down that end, over after over, ball after ball, and eventually you'd make a mistake. And that was his modus operandi. And uh, it was a great challenge to play the guy. I mean, he got me out a few times, but, you know, I had a few successes against him as well. Mm. Yeah, absolutely, a legend of the game. Moving on a little bit, uh, the next part of your career kind of intrigues me because we move forward to 94-95 and New Zealand's tour of South Africa and plenty of things to talk about. But what I wanted to open with is, what was it like to tour South Africa then? I mean, you ended up playing first-class cricket in South Africa later on in your career. What was that tour, that first tour to South Africa, like for you? Well, I remember uh, fifth form um, history at um, King's High School in Dunedin. Um, so fifth form, what am I, 15 years of age, 16 years of age. 
we had a uh, history teacher called uh, Clive Geary, who was, uh, his nickname was Yub, and he'd been in the Second World War. And uh, you talk to anyone around Dunedin old enough to know Yub, and they would say he was the most unluckiest player not to be a double All Black, rugby and cricket, and loved his cricket. And I got into his history class in fifth form, and he said to me, he followed my cricket career even at a young age, and he knew my brother Ian, who was eight years older, and um, had taught Ian as well. And um, he took a shine to me, quite frankly. Mm. But he taught me about South Africa. And uh, he said, often to me, he said, if there's one, because he'd, he'd, he'd been over there to, to watch the All Blacks play and stuff like that and through the 60s and 70s. And he said, there's one country you want to go and play cricket in Kenya, it's South Africa. Mm. And that's a true story. And uh, since then, as a, you know, I guess, impressionable 16-year-old trying to listen to my, my teacher, who I had a lot of respect, respect for, I, I thought myself, well, it's one country I want to go to. And obviously it was a country that had issues through my initial time, my initial playing career. But when they came back on the scene in the early 90s, I just thought to myself, how good is this going to be? And, um, yeah, enjoyed it. And in terms of the cricket, you know, people often forget New Zealand won that first test in South Africa, not something that uh, often happened. And uh, reportedly the aftermatch of that went on for several days. Was that sort of aftermatch <laughs> celebration just, just part of cricket tours back then? Yeah, well, I guess, you know, we, we finished the game, um, I think, on the fourth day, actually, and we didn't have another game for about a week. So that was that was part of it, I guess. So I guess when you look back, maybe the captain and the coach and the, and the team management should have shown a bit more restraint with, with the players in terms of people were disciplined and what we had to do um, going forward. But it was a strange one, though, because we, we played the first Test match in November and then we didn't play the next two test matches to Boxing Day and then New Year's Day in Cape Town, so Boxing Day at Durban. In between those, in those four weeks or five weeks between the test matches, we played a one-day series against Sri Lanka and uh, Pakistan as well as South Africa. So it was a funny kind of fixture list, to be frank with you. Um, but no excuse. I mean, yeah, the boys had a, had a good time after that test win, which we probably didn't expect. Um, and got to the, the second and third test match in Durban and Cape Town where we are in good positions to win the series, really. I mean, Durban was a, a desultory test for us. We didn't play well, but certainly in Cape Town, we were very unlucky. Yeah, and look, I mean, there's been so much uh, written about that tour and, and, you know, the weed incident. I think if anyone doesn't know, they can just go and Google 94-95 South Africa cricket weed New Zealand and that and they'll find whatever they want to read about but I'm, I'm kind of interested in what it's like to kind of manage um, relationships on a long tour like that I mean it must be you know you put 15 20 people all in close quarters for for two or three months I'm sure it's a, a tricky thing to to manage particularly as a, a leader of that group well you presume they're adults for a staff that's that's the first presumption you believe you know they can handle their own lives and, and, and work around that and uh, con- control things to an extent. Um, and largely people did during that tour, to be fair. Uh, it was the first time New Zealand had been to South Africa and, and um, you know, a few things there which we probably could have improved on looking back with the benefit of hindsight. But in saying that, you know, that first Test match when it Wanderers was uh, a, a great performance by the team mm. and... And so Cape Town, if, if you look at that Cape Town match, there was a couple of things there which happened. I mean, I don't want to, I mean, 
you, you can play with umpire decisions and, and referees' decisions, rugby or football or whatever it might be, and you think, well, that's that had a bearing on careers and, and, and things and, and legacies. Well, that Cape Town Test match, guys, quite frankly, I've never played a Test match like that before where there was situations which happened during the game where things just went against us. But anyway, sour grapes. Oh no, no. I mean, what what was the? I guess what was the the fallout for you after that tour? Because it, it, you didn't really play too many more games after that. Ended up going back to South Africa and, and played first class cricket after that. Yeah, well, I mean, that was a personal decision, really. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, I think Glenn Turner came in as the coach, and he decided he had a different sort of way of looking at things, and uh, you know, it didn't include me, and and that, that's fine. You respect. A person of Turner's stature in the game, uh, the fact that he's coming and, and he wants to change things, uh, there's no issue there. And, and you know, I, I, I would have quite liked the fact that you know, maybe gone to South Africa and played Curry Cup over there for a couple of years or three years and come back to New Zealand and maybe had a go for New Zealand again. But mm. the, the fact of the matter is, fellas, you know, I, I went to South Africa, I enjoyed it. Um, on a personal level, it was very, very good for me. And uh, on a professional level too, in terms of my cricket, um, playing for Transvaal, um, they had a good side, had a, had, a, had a number of South African players playing for them. Uh, the, the cricket was of a very good standard when you play Western Province. They had the guys like Desmond Haynes playing. They had McMillan, Matthews, Kirsten, Callis, Gibbs, etc. You played against Natalia, Malcolm Marshall, they had John T. Rhodes. They had um, guys like Dale Beckenstein, Tertius Bosch. Uh, Sean Pollock, obviously, um, and, and all, all three. You go through Northern Transvaal, um, Free State, Eastern Province, had a great side of Kepler Vessels, um, captaining that, that side. Brett Schultz, Merrick Pringle, uh, got with Tim Shaw, Dave Callahan. I mean, they're really good players. So the quality of, of, of cricket, even though I wasn't playing Test cricket, was still very, very high. And, and um, yeah, I was successful there, did well personally. And did well as a team, so it was a, a really nice five years playing for Transvaal. And then after your sort of playing career finished, you ended up in in the coaching uh, ranks for a little while. You end up as, as coach of the Ireland <laughs> national side. How did how did that come about? And and maybe can you share a couple of stories of 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 what it's like to coach that Ireland side? I've lived in Belfast. I've watched cricket at Stormont a couple of times while I was living there. Yes. Um, what what was it like coaching that that Ireland side? Frustrating because you look at it now, and they're obviously, gee, are they, are they a test playing country? I think they are, aren't they? Yeah, they are um, a test playing country. Yeah, they yep. played test last year, didn't they? Against England, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, in those days, frustrating because the, the main frustration was born by the fact that they weren't allowed back in those days any players from outside of Ireland. So you had to be born in Ireland. And uh, when you're playing in the same kind of group of countries like Holland, Denmark, Scotland, Canada, America, we had all these. Uh, naturalised folk from South Africa or the West Indies or from other cricket-playing nations, which obviously gave those countries a, a real step up. It was it was a sense of frustration. But since they've changed that, they had guys like Trent Johnson come through and and other guys initially. We, we had a guy who played club cricket in Dublin when I was there. Um, I'm just trying to think of his name. Jeremy is his first name. Um, Pete Bates for New South Wales had gone over to... Dublin and lived over there and couldn't get in the Irish team because he wasn't uh, naturalised. So that, that was a certain frustration. But uh, nowadays, Irish cricket is, is very strong, obviously. And, and the, the great thing for me was going, as you said, to Belfast and to go around the, 
some of the club grounds. I mean, they were terrific little grounds. Uh, to go up to, to Derry, to London Derry, and see some of the grounds there in terms of um, the, the following they had and some of the uniqueness of the grounds there. Some of them were, were literally 45-metre boundaries and, and 80-metre boundaries down at Hillside on the other side. I mean, it was just incredible how the, the sport of cricket had evolved in places like that, which was which unique and nothing wrong with that. Um, going down to Cork and seeing how cricket was down there. So it was a real eye-opener for me, but I think it probably told me at the same time that uh, coaching wasn't really for me. Um, it, was, it was probably time that I looked at something else other than cricket in terms of where I wanted to go in my career. Mm. And just before we move on to some of the things that you've done in your in your post-cricket career, I have a story from uh, one of the co-hosts of the show who was uh, touring with an MCC side, I think, or might have been his club side uh, in 2002-2003, played a couple of games against um, the side in Ireland and very famously the Irish side was very hospitable and took them out on the town uh, the night before the game in Belfast and, and thoroughly gave his side a touch-up on game day. Was that something that uh, was part of the pre-game uh, hospitality for that Irish side to, to make sure that uh, visiting teams got the best of uh, life in Belfast or Dublin or wherever he happened to play them? Yeah, I think I think it was very much on the on the agenda. No doubt about that. Uh, <laughs> no, it was, it was a good, good good part of the world. Obviously, I mean, it was a true part of the world to and some real characters. I mean, it's just guys. There. Every club you went to, as you'd appreciate yourself, been to Belfast and going and playing club cricket over there, or going a few grounds over there. They all had these characters in their club rooms, and guys have been there for 20, 30 years. Their families have been there prior, and 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 still there now probably. And um, yeah, you know, the O'Briens is a great example. With the, I think it's the Railway Club in Dublin. I mean, they've been there for years and years and years. Yeah, Noel and Kevin, the latest, but there'll be O'Briens the next 30, 40 years probably out of that club. So um, that, that's that's what cricket's all about. And, and those smaller countries where cricket isn't quite the fabric of the community, they need to have that connection with with the community. Mm. And you touched there on on moving into something outside of cricket. I mean, you're now involved in the, in the racing industry. You've had quite a few roles in, in the betting industry. Rumours are you've you've always enjoyed a punt, and um, I don't mind a, a punt myself. Um, and you hear those legendary stories about guys like Mark War, who reportedly got out on purpose so he could watch a race. Do you have anything like that you can share from your playing days? No, not not quite. I know Mark pretty well. I speak to him. Pretty much meet every week or text every week, so yeah, I'll be surprised if he did that actually. But um, um, the only time I ever went off the pitch to watch a race was uh, Transvaal at the Wanderers Johannesburg. Forget who were playing. It was the middle of the session. I was we were fielding. I was captain, so that's not very good to admit to. Jimmy Cook was our coach, and uh, he was pretty keen on the punt as well. And um, we had a really nice horse we were following in the next race at Cape Town. So I said to Jimmy, look, well, I think my hamstring is going to have a little problem <laughs> about 3.33 p.m., mate. And he said, Rods, I know what you're saying. He said, I'll make sure the TV's on the racing channel. So I, about 3.31 p.m., I had a slightly pulled hamstring. And Cyril Mitchley, who was the umpire, who's a bit deaf, actually, Cyril, uh, so to go quite close to him and tell him. Um, but he also loved the horses too. So in fact, he used to get the same bookies as I uh, on an off day. Uh, he said, Rudds, you're not going to have to watch that race from Cape Town, are you? And I said, yes, I am, Sir. He said, well, make sure you tell me who wins. <laughs> um, so I went up and watched the race with Cookie, and we did no good. We did no good at all, actually. Oh, no. And uh, about 3.37 p.m., I was back on the field, so I missed about two overs. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and, and Mitch wasn't very happy because we backed the same horse. But um, no, no, that's, that's the only time. It's the only time. And, and most of my mates would be surprised by that, but that's the only time I've got off the field to, to watch a race. In the old days, before internet betting and phone betting and all that sort of stuff, I used to, you know, in the old club days of playing with the Eden Cricket Club at Tonga Park, mm. you'd take your trebles and your winning places and your doubles for the whole day uh, at 10 o'clock in the morning at the St Kilda TAB in Young Street, uh, south of Eden, and, um, and you play your cricket and then you go, <laughs> you literally go at night time uh, when it's still open and uh, put your tickets through the machine and, and hope like hell you've actually won something. <laughs> yeah, and they'll, you wouldn't be recording it or watching it live or anything like that. So, uh how things have changed, eh? Yeah, yeah. Look, on a, on a more serious note, um, many years ago you were encouraging the ICC to partner with betting agencies to stop match fixing. I, I found a, mm. a quote you said, at, at my old job at Singapore Pools, we often used to hear, we often heard things in advance from our network of spies. It was something that was suspected in football. The match officials would warn players prior to the game that the match was suspected of being fixed and they'd, they'd better not try anything. There's there's plenty to unpack about that quote. I mean, obviously not expecting you to name any specific uh, events, but like, is that is that what would happen? And and I guess is there like something in the system that you'd get bets on, um, you know, a, a first try score or whatever it is, and something triggers in your system, and then sort of everything unpacks from there. How does it all work as a betting agency? Yeah, well, in Singapore, it was it was. Um Really interesting. I mean, I went over there having been the head of sports betting at the TAB in Wellington. And um, the big thing about Singapore is, is their turnover. Their turnover is very, very strong. I mean, their sales, uh, the amount of bets that they produce. And the key for them in terms of their local competition, local competition over there, guys, isn't just Singapore football, but it's pretty much Southeast Asian football. Um, the, the integrity of the competition's key because obviously if you – as a Joe Bloggs punter, don't believe the competition is integrous, then you're not going to have a bet. If you know that the results are preconceived, then you're not going to have a bet. So mm. it was continually a conversation I used to have with um, my boss in terms of I, I kind of knew certain games were, were fixed, but um, at the same time, you had to protect the integrity of the competition. And there's a couple of instances which I won't go into, which were fairly obvious that things weren't the case. But I guess the point I was making around cricket, and cricket's different, well, it's similar and it's different, is that what you see is legalised um, betting on, on, on the sports, mm. uh, whether it be football through Southeast Asia or cricket in somewhere like India. The, the legalised aspect too, well, there's nothing in India that's legalised, but in Southeast Asia, the legalised aspect of football betting is, is minuscule. You know, Hong Kong Jockey Club do it. Um, there's Singapore Pools do it. There's a couple of others who might do it. But the the informal or the illegal aspect to it is, is absolutely ginormous. And there's an opportunity there in India even to get 5 or 10% of that um, revenue to try and legalise and do it through um, base, basic you know, community means where it's going to, as Hong Kong does through their jockey club there and Singapore does through the pools and through the turf club in Singapore to put it back into community projects. No different, I guess, to what happens in New Zealand with poking money. It goes back into community sport, but on a, obviously on a potentially a lot larger, larger scale in something like India or Hong Kong or, or Singapore. So that's simply the point I was making, is that the the, the black market is always going to be there in, in sports betting. You might as well get a share of it by legalising some of it. 
And that campaign to sort of partner ICC and, and the sports betting agencies to help combat match fixing, I mean, it's still that combating match fixing is still something we're going through now and when we're seeing lots of things come up almost year by year. Did the ICC get any traction on, on that process? Do you think they, like they've made strides in the last four or five years in being able to combat match fixing by the way they handle their relationship with betting agencies? I wouldn't have thought so, but I think the what's happened, and you've got to, as I said, as I might have inferred, you've got to differentiate what is a betting agency and what is illegal, and there's a huge mm. illegal black market operation occurring, which you know I can't even describe how how it works. I mean, I understand in Singapore terms, this, this is 15 years ago now how how it worked, but it might it's obviously changed and matured from now, but. The whole betting market, though, in terms of, um, you know, through all sports, tennis was one of the worst back when I was bookmaking, um, but other sports as well, I'm sure, are the same. It's not necessarily around the result of the game. That's why it's so hard to police. Mm. It's around individual events in a game, whether it be a – look, I don't know. Um, I'm just making this up uh, for the sake of description, but a forward pass in the 21st minute in the game of rugby or a – or a crooked line-out. I'm not saying that it happens at all. I'm mm. not saying it happens. You know, wide and cricket in a certain ball, as you saw, or no ball with the, the Pakistani that time at Lords. Um, the, the, the ability for the, the, the malcontents in terms of the black market and the, the betting market to come up with new things, which aren't that hard to, you know, legislate against, which, which are very hard to legislate against, but aren't that hard for people to bet on. Um, it's, it's it's almost endless, isn't it? So, mm. and that's what's happening now. So, I, I I'm not at all going to criticise the ICC or any other governing body of sport because mm. it's just so tough. Yeah, very 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 difficult. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's, it seems like such a complex issue and it's a fascinating uh, one to talk about. It, look, you've been so generous with your time. What we often like to do uh, in the podcast is kind of finish up with a, a few sort of, you know, favourite questions. I will give you a heads up that one of them is the, the best sledge you've ever been involved in. So we'll, we'll get to that one a little bit later and give you a bit of time to, to think about that one. But to start with, what what's the favourite innings you've ever played? Is it that 300 or, or is there something else uh, that sticks in the memory? Hmm, don't know. I, I haven't given a lot of thought Um let me ever think. I, I, I got I, I played well for Transvaal on a couple of occasions on difficult pitches. The Wanderers where it was green and bouncy, and and uh, I thought you know getting seventy or eighty there was actually as hard as getting uh, a, a bigger total somewhere else. Mm. Uh, it certainly wasn't the three hundred. The three hundred was a, a bit of a you know a bit of a hidden hidden hope really. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Let me ever think about that. Um, we'll continue on. Next question. All right, we'll come back to that. You took a test wicket, I saw, in your stats. Who, who was it, and uh, and what was the celebration like? Mooted. The celebration was very mooted. It was uh, Larry Gomes at uh, Border Oval in Guyana. In Guyana. And um, we were through the middle of a very, very long hot day in, in the sun, and you and Chatfield were bowled at least 15 overs on the trot, <laughs> and I came on to bowl some very, very average right-arm medium pace. And Jeff Howell said to me, whatever you do at Larry Gomes, Ruds, don't bowl on his legs. 
So I bought him a full toss knee high on leg stump. He went straight to mid wicket. <laughs> and John Brace was a substitute fields and took the catch. And um, it was my first or second over in Test cricket. And at that stage, I probably had more wickets than runs, quite frankly. I think I'd want it done. And, um, you know, the only guy who didn't celebrate with me was Ewan Chatfield, who stayed out at final leg with his. You know that white hat he used to have, that yeah. funny white hat, that floppy white hat? Yeah. He pulled it down even further over his head so you couldn't see his brows. Um, but um, he was so pissed off. He'd bowl those 15 overs and 35 degrees heat, 100% humidity, with no, to, to no avail. And um, I bowled this juicy full toss and hit it straight in the wicket. So there you go. And you, you're talking to two spinners uh, in the room, and we, we know all about getting wickets with full tosses, so you don't, don't worry about that. <laughs> Um, what what was your most enjoyable win? Um, I'll tell you what it was. Uh, it was in Bombay in 1988. Uh, we won a test match. The Hadley was incredible. Mm. Andrew Jones played one of the great innings of a New Zealand batsman of all time. Uh, I think he got 70 or 80 in the second innings on a pitch, guys, which was just exploding off the length. Mm. Uh, I got no runs. Um it was just a you know full houses every day. The Wandika is it um, stadium in, in Bombay? Oh, yeah. It was called Bombay in those days, yeah. and um, yeah, that was that was a really memorable one. I mean, Wanderers in '94 was memorable, but you know, and, and through no personal um, performance of my own, uh, that was Hadley was incredible that day. Uh, those five days, Bracewell bowled really well. Smithy kept incredibly well. I mean, we came off that test match in Bangalore. We were all sick. Uh, the first test match of that series, so the Bombay test was the second test, and to, to win that one was, I think it would be pretty hard to beat. Nice. And, and your your favourite teammate along the way? Oh, Blaney was good. Blaney's been good fun. Jonesy's been good. Um, Neil McKenzie was a lot of fun at Wanderers. Oh, yeah. uh, he, he was a lot of fun. Um no, I've had a lot. A lot. I, I'd hate to sort of uh, earmark one in particular. Uh, Righty was obviously very good to me. And I think Kiwis, back in the 80s in particular, in the early 90s, you can't really say there was anyone bad. There wasn't anyone bad. Um, you, you always got along and you just, you were there for the right reasons. Of the, you know, you're there collectively. So, uh, but get on pretty well, Blaney. I think he's, he's somewhere in Yorkshire at the moment. Oh, yeah. That, that your your answer kind of ruins my next question, which was who's the most annoying? Well, McKenzie was pretty annoying at Transvaal because he had these he had all these um, and Pothers as well. A guy called Nick Pothers played all of They had all these stupid bloody um, habits where they had their, their shoes have to be you know everything had to be set out the right way. They had this pattern. They're like rough rough on the day watching him play tennis. He's got to walk in the white lines and all that. He's yeah. doing a hidden. So I remember one day the Warners McKinney's only about 150 uh, during the, the latter part of the day's play and just going along all right. And so I went up to his place opposite me in the in the dressing room and just put everything you know completely in disarray. <laughs> he was 100, 180 not out of the stumps and he came and he said, Rudds, that was you, wasn't it? And I said, Yeah, it just goes to prove you don't have to have all this bloody shit the same bloody, you know, beautifully patterned out all the time, mate. Routines are shit. So anyway, <laughs> so no, he was a good guy. Yeah, he's the he's. There's a story about him with the taping his bat to the roof, isn't there? I think. Were you? Were you did you? Ever that was see that day. I've, I've seen him do that. Yeah. Uh, no, he's, he's. It's totally bizarre. I say Nick Potters was the same. 
he was a really unlucky guy, that guy, not to play with more for South Africa than the Bottles when Mark Belcher was around his keeper. He's a hell of a player. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's coaching Middlesex or something at the moment. But um, uh, McKean's an outstanding player. There would be a few guys I've seen who could play the short ball any better. Nice. And we, we've come to that time. The, the best sledge that you've uh, been involved in or, or heard on the cricket field? Well, the best sledge, it doesn't involve me really. I mean, it involves the guy, uh, Cussy Fenter from Orange Free State, when uh, was a story of the Australians tour there in 1993, where um, he was blocking and blocking and blocking on the flattest track in the world of Bloemfontein. And uh, Healy and Warren, Bernie was at short leg, and Warney was bowling ball after ball after ball, and they couldn't get out of his crease. And, I think it was uh, uh, Healy said to Warney, he said, well, you put a Mars bar on the length or something like that. And Warney said, no, no, Bernie will get it. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, nice. And, yeah. And, and look, let's finish up um, the podcast with uh, what, what was your proudest moment uh, when you look back at, at your playing days? Um. Oh, I've had a, I've had a few. I mean, I, I, I honestly, you, you hear some people say, oh, "I don't really think about much." And, you know, you know, I, I'll, I'll be honest, I don't. Um, I did a podcast on this about three days ago. The guy from the UK who was tipped to me by a, by a mutual friend, and uh, this is only the second one I've ever done. Mm. Proudest moment was probably seeing Harry Rutherford score 171. Yeah, nice, nice. Is um. Do, I mean, what? Uh, moving on to Hamish, I guess we'll, we'll. I know we said we'd finish, but um, I will. It, it feels like he's kind of unlucky at the moment because he's he's in pretty good form, and and uh, New Zealand's just got such good uh, stocks in, in the batting ranks. D- does he still sort of harbour ambitions for, to play for New Zealand? Oh, I think he does. Mm. Yeah, I think he does. I think. Yeah, you know, I think he realises now at thirty-two years of age that you know there's there's guys there who. You know, the Ravindras who I've seen play, I'm not too sure about him, but anyway, we'll see. Time will tell. Mm. Um, you know, they've been pushed ahead of him by by selectors, but yeah, no, he's, he's been unfortunate. I mean, I've seen him play some things which would rank a, a, among the best I've seen. And I'm not just saying from a, from a father's perspective, I'm sure if you talk to Hamish, you'll know, he'll, he'll tell you that I'm as harsh as critics. So I'm not going to be. You know, too mellow and 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 spousing too much over the top. Uh, well done, but um, mm. you know, there's 171 against England. I mean, that's that's going to stand the test of time. There's no doubt about that. And yeah, and um, no, he's done really well, and um, he's happy, and he's got a good career. He's going to Glamorgan shortly, yep. and if he gets another chance to play for New Zealand, who knows? I mean, he's the sort of guy who could play to his 40, so mm. the age is no issue. Um, Let's hope he gets a chance. Awesome. That's a, it's, a, it's a great way to, to end the podcast, and it, it's been uh, a pleasure to, to chat to you, and you've been yeah, really generous with your time. So we'll let you go, and, and yeah, just thanks very much for, for joining us here on the Top Order Podcast. Thanks, guys.